Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the Let the Bird Fly podcast studio, joined with my dear friends and colleagues. Um, all of us collared today. Four collar day today. We had four yep. theologians wearing their, their clericals today. Big so day in the department. We set a record. Took a picture. Um, yep. Two of us in tabs. Two of us in rounds, so there was a nice mix. So we had two Catholics and two Anglicans. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, but here in the podcast studio, and this is going to be a short one because I have to go teach. This semester, our schedules, is it fair to say, do not align well? Well, better than last year, though. So we do actually have a time when right. we can do this. So yeah. But the time slot is going to be, and this may be a blessing. Keep yep. it short. We're going to have to stick to things. So we may not have as many free-for-alls, or if we do, we'll try to keep them somewhat short. Uh, but we will not have one today, but we're going to be talking about what I think will be an interesting topic, and I think we may get two episodes out of this. We'll see. Um, but a book um, by the uh, German theologian, Helmut, and I'm let you say it, Jason. You say it the best. I would say Tielicke. Yeah. Tielicke, Tielicke, however we want to say it. Um, a little exercise for young theologians. As far as who he was, we'll just read the thing on the back. He was an inter internationally known theologian and pastor who served as a professor of systematic theology at the University of Hamburg in Germany. His other books include Modern Faith and Thought, Theological Ethics, and the three-volume Systematic Theolo Theology, The Evangelical Faith. And um, this is a book that I've seen pop up a number of times uh, that um, pastors or theologians who I really respect say, found myself going back to this one. Um, I don't think it, I'm guessing it still doesn't, I don't think it has ever really been used at our seminary. But I know in some others, I think um, some of the Missouri seminaries have that make use of this as well, or at least it's recommended. Oh, and maybe maybe just to mention that a little exercise for young theologians is the actual title. Yeah. It, it might sound like, oh, not, that we're just talking about. They're not faking about, you out. Yeah. No, that's the actual title of the book. 74 pages. Yeah, you can, it's manageable. It's You can read it in an evening if you are yep. got yourself a nice beverage. Yep. There's a nice breeze. You're in your rocking chair mm -hmm. on your uh, patio under I, your... My version, I'm down, 41. What do you call that? Um, what do you call that thing you got on your patio? Pergola. Under your pergola. Um, you got your uh, manhole cover. Yep, right. Uh, yeah. Garden. Yes, there um, you go. Decoration next to you. Life is just right. And it's, it's not a complex read. And it's definitely um, what we would call pastoral or practical or applied theology. And while it says a little exercise for young theologians, and he has in mind someone that's that's going into ministry, right? They're in the university to study theology in Germany. Um, in our context, maybe someone in the seminary. I would say there's plenty for everyone in here because it's not only um, young pastors or seminarians who would have things. They, I think every Christian could have some stuff that they draw from this um, for how they live out their faith in their in their vocations. Um, and so that's what we will be getting to. A uh, reminder that we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. You can go to 1517.org and find all sorts of good stuff, blog posts, free academy courses, um, publishing house, you name it, a um, bunch of other podcasts. You can go check that out, 1517.org. Mike and I will be going with our, our lovely wives, um, is it fair to say our better halves? Mm -hmm. um, out to the Here We Still Stand conference in October um, in uh, hopefully sunny San Diego. And uh, so we are looking forward to that and seeing a lot of the, 
the very nice people uh, associated with 1517 with whom we usually are doing more long distance work. Um, so 1517.org. And lest we go too long with this introduction, Michael, would you be so kind as to read our disclaimer? This show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. brings us to our main topic where we will be discussing a little exercise for young theologians by Helmut T. Licke. Oh, you say it so nice. I like it. <laughs> um, and I thought I would give a little bit of a background. I am the one that originally recommended this for an episode, and Jason and Mike kindly took my recommendation and read the book, and we are going to be running with that. Um, I think you both liked the book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I, I was... Uh... I, I didn't know what to expect exactly with this. And yeah, I thought all the way along, there was a, a lot of good, interesting insight in a variety of directions. And so, yeah, I was, I was pleased and it was an easy read. So we can say it has a three co-host of the Let the Bird Fly recommendation star. Three stars is that that's the highest we can get until Peter and Ben come on. Right. So <laughs> three out of three stars. <laughs> um, but the, the book is intended to be, if you're at the beginning, the first chapter notes in parentheses, originally with the student in the classroom. Uh, and so Tilika, as a um, professor, these are things probably he's learned in himself over time, but also in observing others and dealing, uh, I would say, is, is I would most seminary professors probably have a lot of wisdom on this too because they see the growth of students individually over the span of four years again and again and again in a regular cycle. We see this um, with people not doing theology majors, but just as college students, um, that growth as well. Uh, but he, he, this is kind of a, um, a set of lectures or a, a talk um, that he it wants to give to those training for theology. And you guys can correct me if you think this is unfair to say, but largely a warning about not alienating people with the very thing you're excited about <laughs> or yeah. that you have a deep interest or a love for, um, and not making theology simply a um, intellectual endeavor, uh, because in that way you're not only robbing those you'll one day be serving, uh, but you're robbing your yourself of that. So I would say that's my short take on the book. Would you guys disagree or agree or supplement that at all? What he's doing here? No, I would agree with that. I think that's that's the primary value of this, right? That and. Our professors told us this, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of one of those things like you could read this every year, mm -hmm. every semester of your college and seminary in the first five years, and you probably still wouldn't listen to it, right? right. Yeah. Um, but it's it it it's helpful to be told anyway. And we're at the 2004, 2005. We're getting close, close to the 20-year mark in ministry. 
and it's still I found things that were healthy reminders. Mm-hmm. Um, many things were reminders of things I had been told before by wise professors. I I, w- I would say for those of us in Wisconsin Senate circles, um, his writing and what he had to say reminded me a lot of our um, sainted professor Daniel Deutschlander, um, where. Uh, Professor Deutschlander was not only working to make you a capable theologian, but to prepare you to be a real, a real pastor, um, a sales org. Uh, and so I, that came to mind for me as I went through. I, I was thinking that too, that there were, that there were definitely moments in reading where it's like, oh, I could have um, seen this playing out in a, in a Deutschlander lecture pretty easily. And you know what I bet was probably somewhere on his shelves? this book i would bet i w- yeah i wouldn't be surprised and yeah. probably in the original german i would guess that as well yeah with a couple jokes written in it probably yeah in the probably. margins um i will throw it to you guys now this is this is more fresh in your mind i was um the irresponsible one this time i did not get to review this as much as i wanted to go through it again but although it was recent i read it this summer and that's when i gave the recommendation but I will throw it to you guys, and I think our goal, maybe we'll talk like chapters one through six, and I don't think we have to go in, in order of, numerical order of those chapters by any means, but why don't we just, what stood out to you guys, and uh, what would be worth unpacking a little? There's one thing I thought that was, that and this is a couple of chapters in, but he talks about the the theological change of voice, and I think what he's saying is that, that it's kind of like, relating this to, to puberty in a sense, your theological development that you kind of reach a point where, you know, you're at the pinnacle of boyhood or childhood, I guess, if you're, and then before you transition into adulthood, there's this, or maturity, uh, there's this period of awkwardness. And, uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting observation, um, because I, I could kind of relate in a sense. I remember thinking like in high school, kind of getting through some of the religion class, especially once you get through your doctrine class and you're kind of thinking, you know, man, I have, I think I've got most of this stuff figured out. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I, I feel like I've almost reached the, you know, the, uh, yeah, I can get better at this, but I think I know most of what there is to know. And then I remember like you're on the A team. Yeah. And maybe yep. you can work to get more minutes, but Yeah. But you're on but, the A team. Yeah, or improve your scoring average yeah. or yeah, that type of thing. But then I remember getting to to college and going to a couple of those um classes with more of a theological bent to them and just thinking I don't know anything. I thought, you know, I feel like almost lost on this stuff. And, and that's going to be even more yeah. in grad school now as yeah, right. making yeah. this new endeavor. And I yep. think for, um, I, I mean, that was the best part of, of continuing study for me. And I would guess for Mike as well. Well, Mike has said many times that you had become aware of your blind spots, right? That, um, and I don't think that my time at the college has... Um, made me feel any more confident if anything it uh, the more you dig the more that there's there right and and the other the other thing that goes along with this is the way he says it at the end of that chapter of theological change of voice he said you know he's comparing this to you know there's this awkward stage as you're going as you're working toward a level of maturity and that's to say i think you're right in saying that you never reach full-on maturity as a 
theologian. It should be an ongoing, lifelong process of maturation. But he's like, concludes that chapter with this thought. He says, during the period when the voice is changing, we do not sing. As talking like, you know, in your... Except on the Brady Bunch. In your you guys physical that development. But when it's time to change... Then it's, you don't remember that episode? Oh, I, I One didn't of the Brady watch boys the Brady Bunch got his voice changed, and he was super embarrassed to sing, but then they they made, incorporated it into the song, so like his voice, you don't... This reminds me, Mike is looking at me like I'm a dummy. This reminds me, we did get a listener email. <laughs> and I about, like the thank Bra- the listener. about the Brady Bunch? <laughs> no, about the, hi, my name is Joe. Oh. That indeed, they also oh. did the, hi, my name is Joe. Okay, very good. I well, have a wife and three kids, and I yeah. work in a button factory. Okay. <laughs> Jason said he knew it too. One yeah, day, I, yeah, my I that. Wife, wife said to me, to me, came to me and said, "Came to me and okay, yeah." Joe, are you busy? I said, "No." She said, "Now turn this button with your right hand." Yeah, you guys see? Yeah, and you guys got to watch more Brady Bunch, man. Did you? You guys had cable growing up, didn't you? No, uh, not until later. Brady my, Bunch was like set. Antenna TV, yeah, that and the um, little rascals. Yeah. I was the oldest, and so when I went to college, then my family got cable. Yep. But that's, that's yeah. So, but the the point that he's getting at, aside from awkward Brady Bunch moments, is that when you're in this process of maturation uh, theologically, um, he says we don't sing during this physical transition and during this formative period in life of the theological student he does not preach the idea that there's a time to sit and listen and uh just do that that was the advice we were given like if you go to like a uh, what we would call our church council like the the district meetings of all the pastors i think the advice was don't say anything for the first 10 years and that was just sit back and listen but also you're going to embarrass yourself right Mm -hmm. Uh, which which was true. I think I probably embarrassed myself, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that can be balanced with the, you know, no, let no one look down on you because of your right. youth. Because there are people who, once they put in their 10 years, they now think automatically right. what they have to say has <laughs> value. Yes. Like, I, I can remember <laughs> just once telling people, like, if you're an idiot and you turn 60, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're still not an idiot. You may just have a lot of practice being an idiot, right? <laughs> there is content does does matter too. Yeah. yeah. So along those same lines, I th- I think this is an awkward way to say it in in our in our uh, version, page ten, Jason, um, <clears throat> and maybe it's a a translation issue or I'm completely misunderstanding it. Chapter four. Um, there is a hiatus between the arena of the young theologian's actual spiritual growth and what he already knows intellectually about this arena. Um, And it's in italics, so it must be important. Mm -hmm. But I take that as um, what he knows about spiritual growth, what he knows is going to happen, what he knows about the... is There's a big gap between that and where he's at. So your mind is maybe ahead of your experience, Mm -hmm. right? and this is this is Luther, right? That you're not just a theologian of the cross by studying it. You you do have to experience it. And we are careful, though, not to put too much emphasis on experience, too. Right. Um, and maybe there's a flip. Maybe there's the two things with that. Is oftentimes though studying theology, and especially like in our circles, this can be a thing. You're going through the system. Maybe you even um, you went to Lutheran elementary school, prep school. 
college, like you're learning all these things. Like these things are always being learned. But your life experience has to catch up to them, right? Yeah. That the knowledge. Whereas sometimes with a new believer, maybe it's flipped where the mind has to catch up yeah, with the heart, yeah. right? With, with mm-hmm. the fervor, yeah. That's that's good way. I, that that this is sermon material. Somebody should be writing this down and use this in chapel. This is good <laughs> stuff. Uh, the next paragraph, I think he gives an example of that. He talks about dialectics and paradoxes, which is for Lutherans very a very real thing that we talk about. And uh, for instance, the simul justus et peccator, simultaneously, uh, sinner and saint, or saint and sinner, if you want to do it the the Latin way. Um, and he has this nice line, dialectic and paradoxes are the way a law-abiding church's thought overcomes the most monstrous frictions. They are the result of mighty, oft-repeated frustrations, abysmal anxieties, and wonderful moments of consolation. And I don't know if I'm reading him right here, but what, what I take this as, your first five years of, of, the, of being a pastora, you're probably very very, very concerned about saying everything theologically correct to the point where your sermons are hard to listen to. <laughs> but then you you find out as you deal with actual sinners that there's a little bit more gray area than you thought. And you start to embrace the paradoxes, especially of the sinner saint. Yeah. And you start to realize that, because you can't understand why... I, so I, I'm a pastor's kid, fourth generation pastor. There's nothing that has surprised, there's only, I shouldn't say that, there's only been a couple of things that have surprised me as a pastor. And, and I say that not with arrogance, I say that actually with deep trepidation because I knew what was coming and I didn't think I had the ability to be a pastor. Same way with fatherhood. Um, but nothing's really surprised me just because of my upbringing. And except two things. One was that every, every family had a skeleton in their closet and that grown men could act like children. I didn't know that. I was not aware of that mm-hmm. until I became a parish pastor. Um, and so you, you, you just can't figure out, aren't there, aren't there some good, you know, there's good families and there's dysfunctional families, there's patient men and there's impatient men. I don't understand until you, but I knew intellectually the sinner's saint, mm-hmm. but I had never experienced that as pastor. And I think if we take that down to the, to the every Christian level, um, this is something that the Christian learns vocationally in a number of ways too. I would think marriage, right, would be a a um, an arena in which all of us who have been called into married life learn what it is to have that romanticized relationship with a sinner, right? And we learn theology in that if we're Christians and approaching each other through the lens of, of forgiveness. Um, obviously, vocationally in the workplace. Um, in the parish as fellow members, that we, uh, that what we we hear every Sunday and what we're hopefully studying on our own becomes concrete um, in the person of our neighbor. And and this maybe if we can hit a little bit more on what you were saying before. Uh, and I offer the flip side of the new Christian. Maybe the heart can get ahead of the mind, but I do think there is value, and I think this is one of the real treasures we get from Luther that unfortunately I don't know has been as prominent as it should be in within Lutheranism and its preaching and teaching. Um, and I think maybe partly for fear of like existentialism or enthusiasm. Because mm-hmm. anything that gets experienced talk, Lutheranism has somewhat rightly kind of a historical fear of right. yep. pietism or enthusiasm. You know, the 
Schreier Marai, as Luther talks about it, um, or you get to later existentialism, existentialism, and think today of like experiment, ex, experience is basically the primary mode for interpreting the world. Existence over essence. Right. Yeah. Yet at the same time, one of Luther's great insights, and it's not um, peculiar just to Luther. This is in other theologians earlier, um, in many of the um, the great saints of the church. But that theology is done to you. And I know, Michael, we've talked about it this way too, and this is not original to us, that it's not primarily you interpret the word, but the word interprets you. Now, what for that to happen, we need a good dose of humility is what faith, and faith grants us that, that, that we're willing to stand under the word and not over it as some bare text like, like many others. But I do think this is a, this is a healthy reminder. And how does, uh, and maybe I'm just getting on my, my interest lately in formation, but uh, right, how does this happen to us? How does theology shape us? Well, it shapes us. I mean, this is why the table of duties is in the catechism. It shapes us within our vocations. It's not going to shape us by us pulling back from our vocations, you know, and uh, and just withdrawing from the world or, um, you know, becoming just a full-time contemplative. Uh, but it, it, it is the mind and heart um, having to both come to terms um, with both who I am, you know, to thine own self be true, often gets taken as like this, oh, you know, I got to be me. But I love that AA uses that. And what they mean by that is know yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's in a much less flattering way. Well, part of what theology does to us, what the word does to us when it interprets us, is it reveals both who we are, but then it reveals neighbor. It not only reveals neighbor as a fellow sinner, but if we think of the sheep and the goats, um, makes neighbor one of these little ones um, in whom we, we serve Christ uh, by serving them. And so I, I, I know, Mike, you've done a lot with this, um, and, and Jason Pastorelli you've worked with this. Am I sounding fair on that? Am I off? Am I over? Am I going beyond what uh, Tilika is doing here? Um, any thoughts with that? No, I think uh, more and more uh, when, uh, when I th- even think about worship, like this idea that somehow you can be this individual person not, devoid of influences um, is just nonsense right and so uh, like this gets played out in worship I'm just I'm going to wor- worship in spirit and truth and what they mean is I'm going to worship Wait, with, what Jesus meant or what they mean what they mean yeah. of Jesus words that what what they mean is that it's just me and me and Jesus and this is pure it's it's very I hate to throw the word Gnostic around but it that's somewhat Gnostic, like inside's pure, outside's bad, right? So yeah. I find my inside, this is a very American sort of way of thinking. I'm going to sculpt myself right? rather than being a Self-actualization, I mean, all of these terms, right? <clears throat> Self-help, all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, what, what, I, there's a good line I'm going to use somewhere. Some, you know, sometimes you have good lines and you're just waiting for the... Right, yep. Like we think everything's, we think everything's inside when everything actually is outside. Right. I'm writing this down so I can use it first. Yeah. Everything <laughs> we think everything's inside, right? I find my inner light. I find my truth. I find myself. I look inside myself. I believe in myself. I da 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 da, and and you just you you you. This is how the 
this is an example of the Bible reading us or the Bible being ageless in this time of very hyper-individualism. You see Jesus saying, yeah, look inside yourself. Go ahead. Yeah. You know what you see? You don't want yeah. And so, we just mm-hmm. had, um, we've done an episode on this before, but I just used again at the beginning of ethics, David Foster Wallace, this, this is water. Mm-hmm. And he gets at that when he says, if you don't worship someone outside of you, Jace, and he says, mm-hmm. J.C., Muhammad, mm-hmm. whatever, he's not a Christian preacher. Right. But anything else will eat you alive, and, and that's what we leave people with. Well, yeah. Even non-Christians recognize that. And I think there's some language there of, like, you know, eating yourself. You know what I mean? Like being, mm-hmm. if I look for my, my nutrition only inside of myself, right, I, I eat myself away. Right? But Francis so, called the prison of the self and the yeah. desiderio, there's, desiderio desiderio. There's so <laughs> many different kind of, I think, really helpful analogies there that can be really helpful for especially people in our day and age that have been told like we were from the very beginning to believe in ourselves you can do whatever you want blah 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 you know and uh it just doesn't it's just not reality first of all and it's it's selfish it's borderline narcissistic what's that what's the s solipsism solipsism yeah Yeah, you know i mean it's like uh back when was it travis smiley was that his name on snl where the guy would look in the mirror Oh. And he'd be like, and you are handsome. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and that was funny back then. Yeah. But it, it's almost become like considered and so what you're at, necessary now. What you're after being curved outward now, being curved outward to see my savior, being curved outward to to see the law um that's gonna show me my sin as a mirror, but you also uh see neighbor perhaps for the very first time. And this is this is where what, what you're after finally and there's a good line there that uh, he, I think he's kind of after maybe a young preacher and somebody comes with a question. Um, and these preachers, uh, I think that's the subject of the sentence, have smothered the first little flame of a man's own spiritual life and a first shy question with the fire extinguisher of the erudition, right? They're like, let, um, uh, by such performances, a person can really uh, be smothered and strangled. So um, you can just imagine a, someone asking a question and, and the person maybe without trying to be a jerk, is just going to list off all the things that they know about this. And sometimes out of, with good intentions, but they're just, like coming out of Sam and being in the parish, I was so excited to finally be able to like use all the stuff. I had spent eight years studying. And then like the the blessing is, and we'll get to another passage about this, but the blessing is God gives you someone who just looks at you like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> like you're saying the dumbest thing ever, even though you're yeah. saying really smart things. Yeah. And then like they're explaining to you like, no, like pastorally now. Right, right. Or practically. Like in the real world. Yeah. And I, I got one more quote too, but just uh, we, we all sat under um, uh, Armin Panning, <laughs> who is a professor, and he made a huge deal and then, and then tried to uh, emulate this. Um, um, and our, our education professors would point to him about this, point to him as an example that when someone asked a really stupid question, that somehow you you turned it around so like they sounded like they were on the right path. They just had yeah. just needed a little bit of a push, and it was a. And I thought at first I'm like, okay, that's kind of cheesy or whatever. Um, I would say that there were some people in our sections that uh, that. Uh, push him to the point where he couldn't like you could tell him like <laughs> i'm trying to make this answer feel like but it's not but yeah. then that was a skill 
um, that I'm really glad that they, I don't know that they taught us other than just emulating it, but it was really like, yeah, I could totally see that here. You're maybe thinking about this, that that has been extremely helpful. And that's, that's the skill behind this. But uh, Tilika is talking more about the attitude. And, and I, he has this other quote in, in a different context. He's talking, he's using a different, he's using an, an analogy of a different vocation. But um, I found in them no trace of life or truths learned by experience. I smelled only corpses of lifeless ideas, <laughs> right? I would rather go back to the less rigid youth, young heathen, right? So uh, what he's after there is uh, just the corpses of lifeless ideas, right? Ideas that were not lived out, I think is, that was a powerful line for me. Yeah, well, and I think... And I was going to say, yeah, with that too, like he talked about how, you know, the weight of all this learning that comes with that. He's, uh, he's so often like these these guys would come to school to study theology and they'd be excited to learn about it. And there's like a vibrancy of actual, of faith and actual spiritual life there. But then especially I would say in the um, academic climate that they were studying in at the time, Mm -hmm. I mean, it just was crushed out of them by all of the, the learning that, you know, and, uh, and I and, think that's part of what he's warning against as well. Yes, yeah. Is he's cognizant of, and there, there has to be a balance. I know we probably in our, in our little circles definitely went down. We want pastors teaching pastors. You still need to have like some high academic, academic mm-hmm. stuff as well. Um, right. Go ahead. And, and I was going to say, and I think that's exactly it. It's, it's not the, the learning itself necessarily, but well, it could be if you're being, if you're being formed and instructed in things that are false, right. um, which was certainly the case for yes. them at that time. Yeah. But the idea that attitude that, that there also needs to be a, a graciousness and a kindness there while that is being imparted and to give those awkward developmental stages time to, to grow a bit. Um, yeah. And, so, so yeah, I think, you know, I think Panning was, he was a great example of that where there, you know, there was never a heretical statement. It seemed that he could not find at least a grain of truth, which, mm-hmm. and I think guys would kind of joke about that a little mm-hmm. bit, but at the same time, I, I think it, yeah. really appreciated that in thinking about how he, um, how he was able to do that and the example that he set with that. And one final thing, Stuart Smalley is the guy, Stuart daily, yep. daily affirmations. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, yeah. and dog on it, people like me. Yeah. <laughs> the um, I would say maybe to to draw that into what we do here. I would say that our theology department, and probably theology departments at institutions like ours, at a Concordia or a, um, a Bethany, and other denominations probably have similar, but I'm not as familiar. Uh, would be. We're trying to strike a balance with that, which can sometimes be challenging. Um, we in the theology department pride ourselves on our courses being academic theology. And yet I would say, especially Mike and I, with us being here longer, but um, Jason as well, I mean, and this is part of how we have been approaching and trying to shape things, is to do academic theology, but to do it in a way that's pastoral mm-hmm. right that that is formative um that is in this word i'm going to use it and it's a good word but it's been ruined by um english luther english speaking lutherans it's practical mm-hmm. right um theology is a practical habit it is this 
Um, yet in English, practical often means just whatever works. You, yeah. you, it's a utilitarian word. Yeah. And I don't mean it in that way. And I thought this, as I was reading through this book, that, that came to me often of the balance we're trying to strike. And this, we joked earlier about for collar day. And, <laughs> and people might wonder, well, why are they wearing collars or what is it? Um, well, A, it wouldn't be a big thing for there to be a four-collar day if we were always all-collared all the time. Um, but I will say part of our thought and how we dress, and that could be me dressing like a homeless man sometimes, or in a collar, or as I have been this week, I will say. Quite dapper. Uh, quite dapperly with my St. Vinny's thrift store suits. Rumor has it a student labeled your look this week as fresh. Yeah, <laughs> and that was very encouraging to me. Yeah. Um, to hear someone tell me that and uh but part of it is to i would say there's even a formative aspect to some of that that while christianity is is not simply a matter of dress um you're the the christian faith has you're going to meet a lot of different expressions of um what dress you might find it, as you you go out you're going to have the wells pastor and the suit and the packers tie we don't do that one uh, i don't <laughs> Probably the two other theologians, are they Packers fans if they even care about football? I don't know that they um, care. Um, but we don't have any in this room. But uh, but that our classrooms are, I want them to see me both as, um, you know, the academic, whether I'm teaching a history or theology or philosophy class. But there, I want them also to be reminded sometimes that, right, I'm also pastor yeah and i think in our in our little neck of the woods with very few exceptions what we have done is those who are going to teach in the higher level college and seminary that they're going to be pastors first and that's not to say that there are lay theologians who do a great job or whatever and can even be pastoral although that's that's something that's probably more of a gift like Mm -hmm. they just get that um but for the vast majority of people i think um, they have to learn that. So, for instance, like asking kids what in the first week of class what their majors are and whatever, and a lot of them psychology. And I said, do you want grad school and research, or do you want a counselor? And and, and, I, and I, sometimes I say, go be a counselor for a little bit before you do this. Yep. Just trust me on this one. Yep. Like, go do it. You'll have insights, right, yep. that you that you wouldn't other have if you just keeping doing one academic thing after another. Uh, apply some of this first, and you'll you'll think about a definite, and it'll make you a better researcher, right? My my advice that's worth nothing, but it's the same kind of thing. It's it's yep. a it's a lived knowledge rather than lifeless corpses of ideas. And mm-hmm. and you know we sometimes hear that word um, dead orthodoxy thrown out often by those who want to emphasize heart above mind. But there's maybe something to be learned from the that term dead orthodoxy is that there. There were some who gave the impression that it wasn't just a dead thing, that it was an intellectual plaything. And on the other side, there's you know plenty of terms we can use to point out the, the, the dangers of being hard um, to the exceptional mind. And this also, I would just say again, this is not simply for pastors. This is for the parent in the home with their child. Right? You want to catechize them. You want to sit down and do intellectual things. You want to have the Bible, the catechism, the hymnal. Um, but you're also going to shape them with law and gospel by how you interact with them and, and how they see you. And not just that they, I'm not saying, okay, now I just put a tremendous amount of pressure on you because you can never mess up, but also how they see you when you mess up. I, I know some of the, the probably most 
beneficial things I did in the parish was sometimes when I just said, you know what, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't think that through, shouldn't have done that. And I, I remember people just saying, like, I remember, you know, this, and uh, I really appreciated that. And I was like, well, I had messed up. Like this, <clears throat> yep. why is this thing, like, where I messed up? Like this, and right that, so that that's also modeled in when we deal with each other, um, that I not only, um, if I make a mistake and I exacerbate my children or whatever else, that, that they they learn to forgive me. Um, and so I think this is not just a, a pastor thing. Uh, this And this is with friendships. I don't have to be a parent to have this or married. Um, this can be uh, how we relate with, with, with coworkers. Uh, it can be our, I mean, you name it. Uh, it it's, and that's why I, I like that he says theologian and not, and while he primarily means people who are training to mm-hmm. be professional theologians, uh, he doesn't mean that exclusively. Yeah, and I think, you know, just that, <clears throat> you know, recognizing, and, and he mentions this right away at the beginning, the, the idea of, you know, need, you know, I need to recognize in these students, in, from his perspective as a professor of theology, uh, seeing these students, he said, first and foremost, maybe I need to step back and recognize these are souls. Not just yeah. students, not just people, their souls. And I think that's kind of what that's getting at too is in these other these other areas, you also have to see that see this person as a soul for whom Christ died and, and to and to recognize that there that there's a way that you want to interact and treat people in ways that you don't necessarily and and I think that's part of where he's coming from and clearly he has you know um demonstrates very much a a a pastoral concern throughout uh the writing here yeah i'll bring one passage then i don't want us to go um too long but he has and early on he's he's getting at here as jason pointed out a lot of what's happening in in higher ed in germany at this time with theology and it's still happening today you know in, in most of the the big universities um, is modern theology, and I, I don't mean that in a positive sense. You have the higher critical method, um, kind of this boiling down of well, what can be trusted in the Bible, uh, natural theology that's kind of made Christianity just, you know, religionsgeschichte. It's just one of many other religions, and you can kind of see common trends and be nice to people. And he talks about how at first, the student can get almost kind of inebriated with this. He's learning this new thing. It's almost like this Gnostic secret knowledge, right, that the student's now getting. And then he says, If the theologian, however, uh, does not take more seriously the objections of the ordinary washerwoman and the simple hourly wage earner, and if he then thinks, he would hardly express it this way, that the spiritual proletariat is not aware of the delicate questions and must have nothing to do with them, which is just the way of that esoteric club. Surely something is not right with theology. Um, If, in short, the so-called ordinary congregation is somewhat skeptical about theology, this skepticism is by no means naive. Um, It is supported without doubt by arguments from principle and experience. Uh, And I, I think here it just called to mind something that I think is is also something that drew me to Luther's theology. Um, it's something that you that Walther expresses often. Uh, and while I'm not a huge 
fan of like a, a super congregational polity. <laughs> and I absolutely cannot stand voters' meetings. Um, <laughs> Walther's after something good there when he talks about the sheep and the shepherd. Is that when you have now a special spiritual class that develops and one that's based on knowledge that is becomes largely abstraction and divorced from the what God has actually given theology for, it's actually the sheep who need to teach the shepherd. Mm-hmm. And that we see that in Luther, that, that theology boils down to, well, how do you preach that? How do you console a sinner with that? How do you send someone to heaven on their deathbed with that? And then this is where to go back to that word that's just not great in English, but it's such a, a good word, the, the practicality of theology. And I think that is something that many of us as pastors have cherished, is that the congregation became schoolmaster, and a very good one at that. Um, and it's also a task um, that the members of a congregation and the students in our classroom, not with a certain amount of hubris, this you don't want clericalism and you don't want anti-clericalism, um, but that they also uh, are doing theology and they are, in a sense, teaching. Uh, and, and, and that comes out often um, when someone's dealing with a legitimate um, Christian life struggle that we're reminded, and it comes out in Hammer of God by Bo Geertz, you know, in the great scene at the beginning where the new vicar uh, gets sent to um, this, this peasant's house and this man needs to be consoled in death and this this man's only studied rationalistic, you know, kind <laughs> of um, cerebral theology and he doesn't even know how to, and then this, this, this relative, this woman, um, consoles the sinner and he goes, how, why couldn't I do that? Um, that all of us, and, and we've, was that the three of us or just one of us that everyone's a theologian episode? But we've talked about this, uh, that no one's not a theologian. Um, I think Mike was there because I remember Mike pointed out some people are just bad theologians. <laughs> uh, but I thought that helpful in here as well, that um, all of our education, whatever education you received, whether that was a Bible information class, whether that was Christian grade school and high school, um, and then you went out into the workforce or whatever, um, or into a, a college to study a different major, which the world needs many of these, um, or if that was going into ministry, teaching ministry, or preaching ministry, that that was not the end of your education. That prepared you for your education in a certain sense. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that was a very helpful r- reminder. I think there's more later in the book that we can get to, but that that came out early on, I think, um, and in, in that is what makes Christian theology fun, is it's a vibrant thing. Yep. And when we fail to, this is what we mean by the living voice of the gospel, um, I would say when we fail to appreciate that is when we kind of get in those dead spots in our Christian life. Um, but I'll, I'll yeah. stop there and let you guys react with, or have anything you want to close with, and then we'll close it out. Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's one of those things where you run into some of those paradoxes and stuff too that, you know, fun, but also sometimes a, a terrible and dreadful thing, you know, when you're caught in the midst of some of that and or maybe having to confront some of that with someone else or, you know, which makes it very easy on the one hand and very difficult at the same time, you know, and I mean, yeah, all those things. I think uh, um, that idea of, 
meeting someone in the midst of those points of crisis or life challenges or on their deathbed and and that idea of saying well um well, I'd love to talk to you about this, but you need to go back and you're not, you're not asking the right questions and you're not talking in the right language and you need to go and study a little bit more before, then we can have this conversation. I mean, you think, uh, however, why, why ever would you do that? And yet that was the type of thing that he's writing against because that's, is kind of how, maybe not right at that moment, but you know, that was the, the harm that was being done there that maybe, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that you could talk about, but you're kind of being a jerk about it. And you're maybe missing the big picture of what's going on here. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's definitely more that we could say there, but yeah, that was, I think that's a good, a good way to maybe picture what was going on there and what he's trying to warn against and maybe encourage toward instead. Good words. I am, I'm very fat, and I want to turn the air conditioner back on. Right. So if we don't have anything more, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna just let the bird fly, and uh, we'll end on that. And I will, I will cool down myself while pulling this episode off the Zoom. Sounds good. Sounds, Sounds good? good. Let that bird fly.